Ready? Here we are at the Alamo one more time. And we will be for many more times, hopefully. This is increment 32 of our Hebrews 2020 series. And I think it's about the 21st increment of a series within the series called the Corona series. I'm Rick, and Jim occupies a place of honor in the booth, the AV booth, as has been our habit and our custom lately. And we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that you'll open the eyes of our heart, that we may truly see Jesus, your son, at your right side. And we thank you for this opportunity, asking you to allow us to maximize it, in his name, amen. <clears throat> we have observed that Psalm 101, verses 26 and 27 in the Septuagint, is eminently suitable for the purpose of the PT, the pastor theologian, the author of Hebrews, whose intention is to show the superiority of the Son over angels by comparing the present unsteady and entropic state of the universe with the steady state of the sun who remains the same. Hebrews 1.12 fires an exegetical arrow all the way up to 13.8 in that regard. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. The perishability of the universe in entropy, highlights the incomparability of the momentary quality of life in this world with the abiding permanence of the life of future world, which God has subjected not to angels, but to the Son of Man in solidarity with humanity in toto, with all of humanity. This newness of life, as Paul calls it in Romans 6.4, it's a new kind of livingness. It's what Jesus called life, and that more abundantly. This newness of life is actually a participation in the capital L-I-F-E, life, and livingness of the Son of God himself whose life spans the ages and the generations of human history. This, in turn, highlights the importance of this epistle to readers of the 1st and the 21st century. And the importance is toward an impartation of spiritual momentum and the lifting of morale for all believers who are advancing together against opposition as pilgrims to a city whose builder and architect is God. Hebrews 11.10 compared with 13.14. Pilgrims, that is, and not just drifters in Hebrews 2.1. Pilgrims have a destination and a destiny. Drifters don't. They have been oftentimes seduced by wandering or vagabond spirits, which are demonic in nature. 
and so they wander aimlessly in this world. We're pilgrims, not drifters. So I'm asking again, as I did in the last increment, in which there was a pretty hefty (laughs) exhortation, what in the treasury of your heart will remain when everything that can be shaken will have been shaken, including your dependence on a pastor or a face-to-face congregation. The Hebrew writer's intention, or the Hebrew's writer's intention, is primarily exhortation. We've seen this over and over again, and it's revealed in Hebrews 13.22 when he looks back and says, I hope you've endured this word of exhortation. And so, primary aim, exhortation. Even here, as he documents for the readers the superiority over angels of the sun, he does so with a pastoral intention, a shepherd's intention, of drawing the attention of his readers to what and to whom is permanent and eternal and not just evanescent and transient. Paul does the same in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. There he wrote, and this is my translation, for our light and momentary time under pressure is achieving for us an everlasting weight of glory that is way beyond all comparison in value. So we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. A little later in the same epistle, 2 Corinthians, when Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul was speaking there of the eyes of faith which see the eternal. In Hebrews 11.27, the secret of Moses' endurance through 40 years of trial was that he saw the unseen his day by faith. Faith is the eye that sees the unseen eternal. Faith, Faith is the eye that sees Jesus. As I suggested before, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, and 5, 7, describes the truth that is elaborated so eloquently in the narrative within Hebrews called the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. So to be specific about just what is the unseen and the eternal that we focus upon, Colossians comes into play. Colossians 3, 1 through 3, is both helpful and congenial with the purpose of the pastor teacher, pastor theologian in Hebrews. And in reality, with the intention of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews. Colossians chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 3, again, this is my translation, reads like this. Since then, you were raised up together with Christ, that is, incorporated into his resurrection life, and sublated into newness of life from above. That's what it means to be hid with Christ. Your life to be hid with Christ means that your ordinary human life and the life that we lived formerly has been sublated incorporated into the life and livingness of Jesus. And in that connection, the life that we knew under slavery to sin is put off, as we learn later down the line in in Colossians 3.10. But let me read it again. Since then, you were raised up together with Christ, that is, incorporated into his resurrection life and livingness, with your life sublated into newness of life from above, then focus on the things which are above. Concentrate your attentiveness on those things. Where Christ is, and please notice this, seated at the right hand of God. Sound familiar? Hebrews 1.3, sound familiar? 1.13 of Hebrews, sound familiar? Hebrews 10.13. He goes on to say in verse 2 of Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. In verse 3, for you died, and your life is hidden, that is, sublated, with Christ in God. With this phrase, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, we're right back in Hebrews. Colossians 3.1 contains an allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, to the verse we're about to study in some detail. The verse we're dealing with is the final flower picked for this florilegium. And the climactic quotation in the Katina between 1.5 and 1.13, or through 1.13. Hebrews 1.13 has a precise quotation of Psalm 110.1b, which in the Septuagint, once again, is 109.1b. It's the words of, his, of the Father to his son on the occasion of the son's exaltation and coronation after he made purification of sins, which is the removal of the sins of the whole world. Now, I want to take a slight detour here, but one that really isn't too far from what we're teaching. The PT has decided not to openly highlight the universally saving significance of the Son in this homily, because his primary purpose is one of exhortation and admonition or warning to a particular group. The warning that he delivered could be cooled by majoring on the theme of universal salvation. And what what do I mean by cooled? Well, there is a 
person who's called a cooler, and he is he or she is paid to go and stand next to someone in a casino who is on a hot streak. The cooler is someone who has this uncanny ability to cool off a hot streak. Well, in this epistle to the Hebrews, the universal salvation being majored upon by the writer would be a cooler. It would cool their progress by majoring on the theme of universal salvation. So by a brilliant and expert utilization, now let me stop and say right now, that doesn't mean this writer doesn't believe in the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, nor does it mean that that theme does not resonate in this epistle. It does in many ways. But again, by a brilliant and expert utilization of formal rhetorical eloquence. He writes and speaks in such a way that his readers have to seriously consider, we have to seriously consider too, as 21st century readers, what is to be gained and that there is something great to be gained by spiritual perseverance. And there is something great and significant to be lost by continued indifference. He makes it clear that both the loss and the gain are of enormous importance, both now in this world and in future world. I hope you're hearing that. He makes it very clear that both the loss the possible loss, and the potential gain are of enormous importance both in this life, in this world, and in future world. People who have come to faith in Jesus Christ as the unique Son of God can now choose with their liberated will to live and think and act as if God's Son is not enthroned at God's right side and upholding all things while guiding all of history to a redemptive conclusion. They can act and think and live that way. Or they can choose to trust in the Lord in a universal way. And by universal way, I mean trust in the Lord Proverbs 3, 5, for example, is universal in its application, meaning there's never a time in your life on this earth that trust in the Lord is not relevant and pertinent and significant. There's never a time when the Holy Spirit would say to you, well, don't trust in the Lord for this moment. Don't trust in the Lord for this crisis. Don't trust in the Lord during this season of prosperity. No, trust in the Lord is a universally applied mandate. So people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ can choose not to trust 
or to trust. To trust the Lord in a universal way, and by that I mean at all times and in all situations, whether those times involve historical, national, familial, or personal, or group downtrends or uptrends. Trust in the Lord as Jesus did. He trusted his Father, Yahweh the Father, in the days of his flesh. That's coming up in Hebrews 2.13, as well as implied in Hebrews 5.7-8, in the days of his flesh, he cried out to God and was heard because of his reverence, and that reverence there means his faithful obedience or his obedient faithfulness and trust. We also have this in Isaiah 8.17, which is alluded to in Hebrews 2.13. Jesus trusted in the Father. So to imitate Jesus is simply to trust in the Lord constantly, continually. I like what he said simply in Mark 5.36. Don't fear, only believe. So trust in the Lord as Jesus trusted the Father in the days of his flesh. That has enormous ramifications or consequences both now in this world, which is presently under the sway and under the influencer called the evil one, and in the world to come that God has subjected not to angels or to the angelic in the Hebrew, Beniha Elohim, sons of God, angelic type, but he has subjected future world to the human sons of God in solidarity with the Son of Man, Jesus. So Hebrews, in its overall thrust, says in effect what Yahweh said through the prophet Amos. And Amos said, or Yahweh said in his prophet Amos, prepare to meet your God. That was the essence of my exhortation in the last message or two. More specifically, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Amos 4.12. And again, this has deep importance to those who have reflected on the identity of the Israel of God in the past. It is to God that all the communicators of the word will give an account in Hebrews 13.17. It is to him, to God, that all human beings will give an account in Hebrews 4.13. There isn't any creature even that is not laid wide open and naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do and to whom we must give an account. Second Corinthians 5.10, my translation, reads this way. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, that is, in this present mortal body, in this existence in this world, whether as agents of beneficence and benevolence or of worthlessness, worthlessness and malevolence. Psalm 110, 1b, 
the second part of the verse, which is the LXX or Greek version 109 1B, is the climactic quotation of the Katina, the series of verses in Hebrews 1 5 through 13. Hebrews 1 13 in turn looks forward to Hebrews 10 13, where Psalm 109 1 in the LXX is alluded to in the context of the Son sitting down after he had made one sacrifice for sins forever in Hebrews 10.12. Hebrews 10.13, and I'm firing an exegetical arrow from 1.13 to 10.13. Hebrews 10.13 pictures the Son, and so we see Jesus waiting for his enemies to be made a footrest for his feet. Please notice that exact translation. His enemies to be made a footrest for his feet. Hebrews 1.13, which involves an exact quotation of Psalm 109.1b in the Septuagint, looks back at the exordium or the initial introduction of Hebrews, namely 1.3 of Hebrews, where we read that the Son, again, sat down at the right side of the majesty on high after making purification of sins. The quotation here in 113, and this is very important, is lifted directly from the Greek text, Psalm 109, 1b. In your English Bibles, you have it in 110, 1b. But the Hebrews quotation resembles and replicates the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament 109 1b perfectly. And I put this in print so that you can see the Greek text reproduced with precision between 113b and Psalm 109 1b of the LXX. It is impossible to estimate the value of Psalm 110 in our English Bibles, the Greek text 109.1. It is impossible to estimate the value of this passage for the writers of the New Testament in general. A Christological, we call it, a Christ-centered interpretation of this monumental verse was essential to early Christianity, as it is now. And this helps us to understand that the PT, the writer of Hebrews, is deeply rooted in early Christian tradition and not in Gnostic mysticism, Hellenistic hero mythology, including the so-called Redeemer myth, or the allegorical writings of Philo, even though the writer of Hebrews does use terminology that reflects these other traditions or is used by these other traditions. In Psalm 110.1 is found in, and when I say Psalm 110.1, I mean 109.1 in the Septuagint, is found in Matthew 22.44. You might want to check these contexts out yourself if you want to, the verses and contexts of the quotation. Matthew 22.44, Mark. 1236, Luke 
20, 42 to 43, Acts 2, 34 and 35, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Hebrews 1, 13 and 10, 13. We could say that all of the book of Revelation in one sense is an apocalypse of the enthronement of the slaughtered lamb. There is an allusion to Psalm 110.1 in Ephesians 1.20 and an allusion to Psalm 8.6 where we also have a reference to the feet of the Son of Man from Psalm 8.6 or LXX 8.7 in Ephesians 1.22. All of the New Testament then in one sense stands on this base. This verse, which dramatically depicts the exaltation of the crucified and risen Christ, namely Jesus. The Lord Jesus is not waiting to reign or to rule. He is reigning. He is ruling. But he is waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. Consequently, for now, for the time being, for our present current time under pressure in this world, we don't see everything under his feet. But we do see Jesus. That's the whole point of our series. We do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The PT ingeniously ties Psalm 110b, LXX 101, 109-1b, with Psalm 8, 4 through 6, LXX 8, 5 through 7, in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. And so we anticipate this. And later he adds Psalm 110, 4, which is 109, 4 in the Septuagint. And we find that in Hebrews 5, 6, 5, 10, and other places in Hebrews. He adds 110, 4 to the mix and capitalizes on it in an unprecedented and an unparalleled exposition of Jesus as our great high priest, GHP, through the age after the order of Melchizedek. This exposition of the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ is a remarkable impartation of comfort and encouragement from the scriptures, as Romans 15.4 says, and it's for us. It teaches us that we not only have Jesus as our presently reigning king, but that he is also at the same time our interceding archpriest who can never be replaced because of death, because he serves and intercedes for us by the power of an incorruptible life. The Greek version of Psalm 109, 1b doesn't have the Lord saying, and this is an important detail, a detail that's very important. The Greek version of Psalm 109, 1b does, does not have the Lord saying to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It doesn't say that. The Greek version says more exactly Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool or a footrest for your feet. 
for your feet. Hupa podion ton podon. And that means for your feet is emphasized. A foot rest for your feet. Again, hupa podion ton padon. A foot rest for your feet. Now, in my view, this is extremely important because it allows us to see the Father and the Son in a most tender interchange. The Son, Jesus, had suffered to enter into his glory, as all the prophets intimated in Luke 24, 26, and 27, 1 Peter 1.11, even as the Spirit of Christ testified in them. In the ordeal of his suffering, his endurance of the cross, he had received great injury to his feet. Specifically, when Paul alludes to this verse, he even says it that way. He says he must reign until he, the Father, puts all his enemies under his feet. He doesn't even make a reference to the footstool. Now, as Psalm 22, 16 says, and the voice of Messiah is heard there, echoing down the corridors of history, in Psalm 22, 16, which is the LXX 21, 17, he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. When Paul alludes to this verse again, and I think one of the most significant allusions to this verse is found in 1 Corinthians 15.25, which is in a patch of scripture that is reaches further out into our future and God's future than anywhere else in the Bible that I can see. And that's the passage that begins in 1 Corinthians 15.20 and goes through 28 ending up with God being all in all. So in 1 Corinthians 15.25, in the middle of that, Paul simply says, quote, he must reign, speaking of the Son, until he, the Father, puts all his enemies, the Son's enemies, under his feet. Hupa tus podos. And Paul makes no direct reference at all, even to the footstool at all, or the footrest at all. Because he emphasizes the feet of the son. Like the PT in Hebrews, Paul refers to both Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 in 1 Corinthians 15 to show that everything is to be arranged under the feet of the son of God, who is also the son of man in Psalm 8. So this strengthens the notion that the PT, the author of Hebrews, has been more strongly influenced by the apostolic take on the Old Testament than by the Hellenistic Redeemer myth, which I was taught about in the University of Vermont in 1973, and I have a kind of an anecdote about that someday. So instead of this writer being influenced by the Hellenistic Redeemer myth or by Gnostic mysticism or by Plato or much later by Philo. His influencer was early Christian tradition. We've shown the influencer 
being Stephen, we also see that there was a strong influence of Paul on the Hebrews writer, who happens to be a Hellenistic Jew. And so, with the emphasis on the feet of Jesus here, there is an accent on his true humanity and consequently on his incarnation. There is also a notable suggestion of his resurrection. But what is often missed here, and I've tried to emphasize it in the past in our teaching on Hebrews and elsewhere, what is emphasized and often missed here is the Father's tenderness and love for his beloved Son. The Father says, in effect here, sit here and I will make your enemies a footrest for your feet. As if to say, rest your feet, my son. Feet that were so cruelly pierced because of your obedient faithfulness to me during the suffering that you endured in order to come to be in perfect solidarity with fallen and sinful humanity so that you could lift them to solidarity and unity with yourself. And so there's a tenderness here between the Father and the Son, a tenderness which the Father also directs toward all who are in his Son. With this in mind, consider a few verses. Luke 24, 39, the emphasis on the feet of Jesus. Look at my hands and my feet, he said to his disciples after his resurrection that it is I myself. His feet are part of I myself, of him. Touch me and see. Because a ghost, and they had supposed that he was a ghost or a phantom, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. But he said, look at my hands and my feet. We see Jesus. Or how about Matthew 28, 9? Jesus sees his disciples after the resurrection, and he says, good morning. They came up, it says, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Emphasis here, his feet. I will make your enemies the footrest for your feet. John 20 and verse 12, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb and it says she saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body had been lying. An angel at the feet of the place where Jesus had been lying, another at the head, a head once crowned with thorns, a head now crowned with glory and honor, feet once pierced by a spike, a nail, feet now waiting to rest upon all things, including his enemies. How about Revelation 1, 17 and 18? This time, my translation from when we dealt with Rev the book. 
Revelation 1, 17 and 18. And when I saw him, John said, one who had the name Son of Man, in verse 13, when I saw him, I fell down before his feet as a dead man. But having placed his right hand on me, he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And he said, I became dead, but look, I'm alive and well for the endless ages. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. These verses take on a strange twist of fascination when we consider the feet of Jesus. We see Jesus. His head once crowned with thorns. Now crowned with splendor and honor. His feet once pierced. Now waiting to rest on his enemies. I emphasize this last part of the quoted psalm first because it accords most intimately with our theme, we see Jesus. Second, we observe that this quotation is preceded by the very form of a question with which the whole katina began. Notice 113, it begins the same way that the whole katina began with in 1.5. So there's an inclusio, there's a, a rounding off or rounding up of this florilegium. It's in 1.5. To which of the angels, for to which of the angels did God ever say? He says that in verse 5. In fact, to extend it, he said, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Well, in verse 13, he writes this. And to which of the angels did he, God, ever say? There's an inclusio. That means at the beginning and the end of the florilegium, there's the same question. Here he says, and to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. With the words, your feet, the PT closes out the series of quotations which document the superiority of the Son over angels and the incomparably greater importance of the word that God had spoken in his Son in these last days with the word spoken by angels. No comparison between the two. This verse is what I would call the right flank of an inclusio, the left flank being 1-5. So when we detect an inclusio, we also should be aware of what is known as a structure called chiasmos, C-H-I-A-S-M-O-S. When you get the printed form of this message, you'll see how I have revealed this or shown the structure of this chiasmos. In this case, a chiasmos, C-H-I-A-S-M-O-S, is formed by seven key passages. It goes in an A-B-C, C-B-A, 
context or order. ABC put it in caps, and then CBA put it in italic caps. You have an A, then an indentation, and a B member, then more of an indentation and a C member. Beneath the C member, you have the italic C member, and then slightly to the left, indented, a B member, more indented, an A member. So the A of the top corresponds with the A of the italic and the B with the B and the C with the italic C. So you have a chiasmos, and that's the Greek letter chi or C-H-I, which also is the letter that begins the name Christos or the title. So here's how it would sound or here's how it is formed up in the ABC CBA chiasmic literary structure. So we have A, which is 1-5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. In the B member of the chiasmos, we have verse 6. And again, when he leads his firstborn into future world, he says, worship him, all of God's angels. Then in the C member, We have in verse 7, and with regard to the angels, he says, he who makes his angels wins and his ministers a fiery flame. Then we have the second three, which begins with the italic C member in verse 8 and 9. But to the Son, he says, your throne, God, is for the ages of the ages of the age. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. That is why, God, your God has anointed you instead of your angelic companions. And then we have the second B, or the italic B member of the chiasmus underneath that. You'll see this all in print, and I think you'll be glad to see it in print. We have verse 10 through 12, which says, And in the beginning, Lord, this time God calls him Lord, or the psalmist calls the Son Lord. The Son is called the firstborn. The Son is called my Son by God. The Son is called God by God. The Son is called Lord by the psalmist. In verse 10, the B italic member says, And in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and like a cloak, you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. And then we finally have the A, italic A member, which is our verse today, 113, which says, and to which of the angels, notice the same question that he started the Florilegium off with in verse 5, and to which of the angels did he, that's God, ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. That's the end of the Florilegium.
This structure is bracketed then by a twice-asked question. To which of the angels did God ever say? If we were to list now, let's do it a different way. This time I'm doing A through G just in a direct order of the seven quotations that he offers. And there are other incidental or ancillary quotations that go in here too, but there are seven main quotations. Let's just list them in a structural way, A through G. That's seven members. So there are seven quotations. And let's have them determine the literary structure. If they were to determine the literary structure of 1, 5 through 13, what we call the florilegium or the catena, it would go this way. A would be this in 1, 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. B would be, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. C In verse 6, and again, when he leads his firstborn into the world, he says, worship him, all of God's angels. D is also Hebrews 1.7, and with regard to the angels, he says, now D is the central member in this seven-member structure. With regard to the angels, not the Son, he says, he who makes his angels winds or spirits and his ministers a fiery flame. Then the E member, which is 1, 8 through 9, but to the Son, he says, your throne, God, is for the age or the ages of the age, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your angelic companions. The F or sixth member in this way of looking at the structure is 110 through 12. And it reads, and in and, quote, in the beginning, that's the beginning of Gen- in Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, Lord, a title for Jesus, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and like a cloak you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. And then finally, the G, or the seventh member of this just list of verses for for the structure, reads, and to which of the angels did he, that's God, ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. In this list of seven, A through G, the D member would be in the middle. And that happens to involve a description of the angels in connection with phenomena of creation. On either side, therefore, of that central member dealing only with angels, there are three references to the sun on the first side and the last side. And so, again, you'll see all this in print. I think, and it'll be helpful, I hope. So on either side of that central member, D, there are three declarations by the Father made with regard to or in direct address of the Son or in some way where he's called Lord or God or Son or my Son or the firstborn in 
all of these members. So my son, my son, the firstborn, the son, God, Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Now, on top of all this, this last reference to the feet of the sun finds a match by Gezerah Shawah. Remember, Gezerah Shawah is where you take a key component or word or phrase of one verse and find that key component or phrase or word in another verse, and you connect them. By this Gezerah Shawah, Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is the Septuagint 8, 5 through 7, is connected to Psalm 110, 1b, or Psalm 109, 1b, LXX, in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. Psalm 8, and Paul uses both Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 in his powerful passage from 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 28, but so does the Hebrew writer, because in 2, 6 through 8, he quotes Psalm 8, which refers to the Son of Man, And everything, everything that is all of creation, not just his enemies, but all of creation in all of its times being under his feet, under his feet. In your English Bible, read Psalm 8, 4 through 6 and Psalm 110, 1 and see the connection. So though we are not concentrating primarily on the literary structure of Hebrews. You can see how that's a daunting task in itself. It is already easy to see, however, that the PT is a disciplined and trained orator and that there is an artistic literary structure to his homily. Same is true for almost all the New Testament books. There's some form of structure that's usually unseen in translations. This one has a particularly artistic literary structure in this homily, and that's helpful for comprehension. It's helpful for driving home the points and the exhortation. In the Son of Man reference in Psalm 8, which we find in Hebrews 2, we get closer to the heart of the twofold question that we mentioned all the way back in increment 13, I think. Why did the Son need to be perfected and why through suffering that's a twofold question for intelligence a quid set question and we'll be at, we'll be tackling it i want to keep it before you and in front of you at all times until then so there remains in chapter one a final comment by the pt with regard to the subordinate being and doing of the angels and that's 114 He puts this comment in the form of a rhetorical question that's designed to evoke a positive answer. In this way, the PT includes his readers and hearers interactively by asking them to concur with him, to agree with him. He says, aren't they, meaning the angels, all, aren't they all serving spirits sent for the support of those human beings who are to inherit salvation. So he says, aren't all, he used the word pantos, all, aren't all the angels subservient in the sense that they're sent by the Son 
and by the Father and by the Spirit, basically, for the support of human beings who are to inherit salvation? And the answer is, yeah, they are. With the word salvation, soterion, S-O-T-E-R-I-A-N, long O, long E, S-O-T-E-R-I-A-N, soterion. There's an exegetical move to what we call in theology, soteriology, the study of salvation, in connection with exhortation. So the study of salvation, soteriology, connects with exhortation. And the first powerful exhortation passage within Hebrews is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Just like the exordium, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, is sort of expositional or proclamational, this 2, 1 to 4 is the first barrage, call it, first of a barrage of exhortations. And in one sense, it's the most, well, it's the initiative one. By this comment, in verse 14, we understand that all the angels are ministering spirits. Now listen to this last part, because I'm not done hitting you with some important truths right now that are relevant and pertinent right now for you and for me and throughout our lives on this earth, in which you will persevere in faithfulness to your last breath. That's the kind of phalanx we are. Hebrews 10, 38, and 39. We don't draw back into loss or into a perishing life of the past. We push on. Now, by this comment in 114, we understand that all of the angels are ministering spirits commissioned for the support of the heirs of salvation. They're to back our play. They're to be protective of us in that sense as we go on in this world. Consequently, those angels whom we call fallen angels or evil angels have distorted their ministries into attempts to thwart those who are the heirs of salvation rather than support them. These evil spirits are those with whom we wrestle. We do not wrestle or fight or have our struggle with enemies made of blood and flesh. In Hebrews 2, 1 and 4, 2, 14 rather, blood and flesh is put together as it is in Ephesians six eleven. Blood and flesh in that order. We do not struggle or wrestle in our spiritual warfare, with enemies made of blood and flesh. Ephesians 6.11 compared with Hebrews 2.14. Even if those enemies, and a lot of Christians think they're pretty clever because they've identified some kind of conspiracy, which may be, in fact, a real thing, but we're not wrestling against Enemies that are part of, say, a conspiracy of wealthy and well-connected globalists with a secret agenda to overturn all Christian influence in the world and to build a global society of compliant slaves. Now, having said that, there is that. But we don't wrestle against them. I don't care how high they are. 
in the echelon of deceptive world rulers. It is not against these blood and flesh adversaries, but against their invisible overlords, spiritual wickedness in high places, as Ephesians 6.12 talks about. We're engaged with the invisible overlords of these conspirators, not with blood and flesh enemies. If you get all tangled up fighting flesh and blood or blood and flesh enemies, you miss out on the whole real battle and the whole possibility of becoming a real hero in the invisible battle. You could say that you're wasting your time. We are occupied rather in a battle too significant to meet the eye for which we require something called, and I do this with a nod to my friend Tom, the oldest living congregant that we have, or the one that goes back further than the rest of the listeners in our phalanx. This is for you, Tom. We are occupied in a battle too significant to meet the eye for which we require the full armor of God, especially and above all, the shield of faith. Why above all? Because trust in the Lord is a universal mandate. It covers everything. It covers every moment of your life. And so one more question pops up. And this is just to throw another question out there. We see Jesus. We do see Jesus. But what does it mean to see? What does it really mean to see? I'll leave you with that. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we thank you for the word that has been proclaimed your stammering lips, as it were, we pray that it will find purchase in the hearts of all the listeners and have the good effect that grace has upon its recipients. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.